Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. All right, folks, thanks for joining us again for this uh, episode of Headspace and Timing. I'm uh, really excited to uh, to have this guest on. Um, I've known uh, Greg for well, probably a couple years now, a little bit more than that. I am uh, proud to call him a, a mentor and a friend, um, but uh, I'd like to introduce everyone to uh, Dr. Greg Frazier. Thank you, Dwayne. It's great to be on with you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, uh, Dr. Frazier's in uh, Florida. I'm in uh, Colorado. I assume both of our weather is beautiful um, and uh, because it just happens that way most of the time. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Greg, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, uh, and, and you know, military service and, and then just a little bit of what you've done kind of since then, what you're doing now. Sure, uh, I'd be glad to. I uh, I served three tours in Vietnam, and um, since that's been many many years ago now, um, I was concerned about the lack of resources that uh, I saw that I needed myself that were not available, as well as a lot of the guys that were coming home from there. So my interest in there. Uh, and, and veterans counseling and veterans issues started really back in 1973 when I came home. And uh, it sort of culminated uh, more recently when I started working with the National Board for Certified Counselors Foundation. And uh, for those of you listening, that's uh, the organization through which I actually met Dwayne. And uh, the foundation has as one of its funding priorities uh, veterans counseling needs and the 
uh, mission of the foundation is to bridge the gap in counseling and to bring strategic resources together to provide those needs for folks in our target populations. So since, um, since being with NBCC Foundation, uh, I helped establish um, a couple of veterans counseling initiatives that provide uh, free counseling to uh, veterans who are perhaps on the waiting list for the VA, uh, which is quite long, or have uh, a reason that they don't want to approach the VA for counseling. And uh, in my other life, I am a qualified parenting coordinator and a Florida Supreme Court certified family mediator, and I do forensic work with the courts. And being in a, a military-centric town like Jacksonville, a lot of my clients uh, I discovered um, are veterans, and a lot of them are OEF and OIF, and they have come back, and uh, the metaphor I used is they came back only partially and their marriages broke up very quickly and they ended up uh, being court ordered into um, parenting coordination with me. So one of the things that I've, I've found that I am able to do uh, that I think is important work is provide PTSD screening and resource referral for a lot of the men and women coming back who are dealing with some or who have not been dealing rather with some of those issues. So you're not uh, you're not busy at all. You you don't. No, no, you, you no. Got tons of free time on your hands <laughs> constantly. <laughs> well, and and obviously and definitely, you know, again, where where I knew that, but just the opportunity to to take some time out to to talk a little bit, um, and and really like to to break some more of that up. The um, the NBCC Foundation is focused on um, underserved populations. Uh, a lot of people may not consider veterans. Uh, an underserved population when it comes to mental health, right? I mean, that's something that, well, isn't that what the VA takes care of? So what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I found when uh, we were establishing the Veterans Counseling Center here in Jacksonville uh, was uh, part of what I did was the some of the fundraising for the center to, to get the program up and running. And I would find people constantly, uh, people who are intelligent, well-educated, and uh, have uh, plenty of resources that, that would help with something in which they were interested. And over and over again, I'd hear when I would approach people about donating to the cause was the, the, the VA takes care of that. And so I, I found that I was constantly in a position of trying not to denigrate the great work that gets done by the VA on very limited resources. Uh, the practitioners that I know that work for the VA are dedicated, committed, passionate people, most of them veterans themselves. And instead of a normal caseload of 25 to 30 clients, they have 200 to 300. So there's, there's no way that the VA will ever be able to meet the mental health needs uh, within the veteran community. You know, and that's uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, we've been having discussions, obviously, um, here in Colorado Springs, and and I'm hearing a lot of people within the VA saying the same thing: that the need is so overwhelming that there has to be community partnerships. Um, but uh, but it sounds like you had to do a lot of uh, just education, a community education um, about you know veteran mental health and and the need that's out there. 
Absolutely, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of people that uh, don't understand uh, what happens, and particularly in, in the, the more recent wars with combat veterans. I go back, my uh, father-in-law was uh, one of Carlson's raiders, and he was one of the first people to set foot on Guadalcanal. And um, he told, we, we got into some, some great conversations, and he said, you know, uh, I remember f fondly coming home from the war. He was on a, a troop ship for six weeks. And they sat around, as we used to say, coking and smoking, and, and telling war stories and sort of debriefing one another. So by the time they got back to the States, they'd had some time to decompress. And you start with Vietnam and move forward and combat veterans are in country one day and at home the next and there's no transition. And uh, I, I think back to the expression we used in, in Vietnam, we'd, we'd, rather than talking about coming home, we'd say we're going back to the world. And I think that was a, a key symbolic uh, statement uh, that fit not only back then, but would fit any combat veterans uh, situation and experiences because what happened uh, I speak of course much more fluently about Vietnam what happened is we ended up in a country where we didn't know the culture uh, values were radically different from our values uh, we had experiences that we never would have had in our country uh, things like you know children with satchel bombs strapped onto them, uh, children with, uh, with weapons who were trying to, to kill us. And uh, so in order to survive, you had to become a part of that craziness. One of the greatest depictions of that, I think, was the movie Apocalypse Now. Right, yeah. And at, at the end of that movie, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, God, what was th that was a wasted 30 minutes in the end. What was that all about? What it was all about was a character who was unable to leave that cultural mindset and come back to what was normative for him. Right. So the choice was for him in that particular case to, to stay there. But the problem with that is, and I think this comes forward to current day veterans, um, there are a lot of a lot of men and women who come home from a combat situation who don't ever really fully make it home. They can't make the transition back into their normal lives and cultures anymore. You know, and and I recognize that. I see the same thing. I and and even from what you were talking about, um, my um, my my first tour in Afghanistan, my second deployment, um, it was one of those where literally. Uh, we got off a patrol, which we had had a firefight, you know, three hours before we ended the patrol, um, boots on ground. And I was actually on a plane leaving country like six hours later. And I was back in America. Um, you know, it was probably two or three days, you know, uh, just because yeah, of the transition. Yeah. Um, but it was that quick and it was a very hard thing to uh, to just wrap your mind around. Um, now, all of a sudden I can get a, you know even something as trivial as hamburger whenever I want kind of thing, but it, there's just this big wide open space. And so I have heard that there, there was benefit to that decompression time, um, much like uh, coming up from a, a depth in the ocean, you need time to be able to decompress, um, you know, uh, oxygen and, and things like that. 
but but there's a benefit to having some of the psychological decompression. One thing that I hear from a lot of people, though, is, you know, well, be careful about, you know, people tell me or, or respond to the writing, be careful about, um, you know, talking too much about PTSD because you'll just perpetuate the uh, stereotype that all vets are crazy <laughs> and stuff like that. What would you say to them, Greg? Uh, I'd say they uh, never mind. Uh, what I would say, say to them could not be on the podcast. But I, I, if if I were in a rational mood when I heard somebody say that, um, I, I would say that that is as as inane as saying uh, if we talk about pregnancy, everybody's going to get pregnant. Uh, we we talk when we start having conversations about mental health. Many people retreat from those conversations into what I think for them is a safe place. And that safe place says, let's don't talk about it and it'll go away. And the fact is, it won't go away. Uh, PTSD has been around since war has been around. And it's just been called by different names, shell shock in World War one World War Two was battle fatigue and and forward, and it wasn't really until 1982 when the uh, Diagnostic Services Manual actually put it in as a, uh, a, a diagnosis. So I I think that that that's the kind of attitude that perpetuates stigma as well. Yeah, I mean I I, I get that thing too. I mean we do have to walk the balance between making sure that everyone who is um, you know, in the community, there is a, a larger gap between those who have served and those who haven't. Everyone acknowledges that. Um, but those that are in the community that want to, you know, that live next to the veterans or work in the cubicle next to the veteran or what have you, um, for them, we we can't not talk about it and reduce the stigma against it. It, exactly. it actually has to be discussed. We had a young uh, OEF veteran who went to work for a major department store chain he had after he had experienced a period of about a year of homelessness and uh, everyone who started in the warehouse at the time he did with this particular store uh, served three months in the warehouse and then they put him in a, a more comfortable a better job and, and got promotions and he got passed over group after group after group so um, I had a conversation with the supervisor uh, who told him that he'd be, he'd be glad to talk with someone else uh, about the problem. So I went in and talked to the supervisor and he said, well, well the, here's the problem. Uh, he told me that he has PTSD and I don't want any of my other employees to get exposed to that and possibly catch it. Oh, yeah. So it's it's yeah. Contagious so it's now. contagious now yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. So so I, back to the, what we were talking about a little bit earlier about community education. That is that's prime. Uh, I I think that when people hear PTSD, largely thanks to you know some sensationalized media coverage of the rare case where somebody um, really goes off the deep end and, and has some violent behavior that affects many, many lives. That's not every veteran. Right. Uh, the, in fact, the population of veterans with PTSD who engage in such behavior as that after having a major mental health breakdown uh, is, is minuscule compared to the, what the numbers are in the general population. 
And, and I think that's really important for a lot of people to understand. I mean, it's, uh, it's an academic thing for when they see it on the, uh, the TV and let me donate to a cause and things like that. But uh, uh, just like with anything else in here, we're talking again about a misunderstood, underserved population of, uh, you know, and really it's a type of discrimination. Um, and that's been going on with mental health in general, um, of course, in the country for a very long time. Um, but veterans are starting to experience that now too. Absolutely, absolutely. So your work um, in, and you said that you had established um, a veteran counseling initiative there in Jacksonville for a while. Correct. So um, what was that like getting it up off the ground? I know you and I have had some conversations about that, but but was what was your experience about trying to establish a veteran-specific mental health counseling initiative in a big city like Jacksonville? I, I think there were there were a number of challenges, and um, one again, one of the basic challenges was people believing that it was not needed because the VA was able to provide the services that we were talking about providing. the uh, The homeless center for the veterans was already in existence, and uh, they had done a great job of helping uh, people transition into uh, jobs. Uh, post post discharge and but the problem was there was a lot of recidivism so these guys that had been off the street and living in the center for uh, I'll say a year on the average uh, we were finding they were coming back to the center because the one thing that wasn't being addressed were the mental health needs right so we tried to make some inroads with the VA and the VA um, in in this area was so overburdened that they were almost apologetic about the fact that there was not much they could do to address the problems unless things got uh, really escalated and uh, and that dealt with one-on-one situation with a specific veteran and while ignoring uh, the needs of, of others. So the education was challenging. We did have some resistance uh, from some of the practitioners in the VA who felt like we were being critical of them or that we were trying to take their job jobs away from them. And we met with a few of them and assured them that uh, there's plenty of work out there for all of us. Right. Yeah. Every one of us. So again, a fund funding was an issue. But one of the one of the things that struck me and that really surprised me more than anything was the lack of cohesion among veterans organizations that are nationally known. Now, what I mean by that is we had at that time, and I suspect it's it's probably even multiplied by then, we had three separate distinct veterans oversight committees. In the community. So these, in the community. Right. So these were organizations that said, okay, let's coordinate what we're doing and make sure that our veterans have what they need. And it was a wonderful idea the first time. The second time, maybe not so much. And the third time, even less so. So now we've got three organizations who are more concerned about who's going to align with them than they are about who's going to be serving the veterans within all of those groups as we see in all areas of life uh there was competition and turf wars you know we we want to be the ones to sponsor this not you and um 
it was it was uh, it was quite a challenge. Then the other piece that that uh, we we ran into that that was actually very positive was uh, Veterans Treatment Court had just gotten off the ground about the same time we were trying to introduce the mental health counseling program uh, for the veteran community. And we were able to work very closely with them and provide the services that were needed uh, for those veterans who had run up against the criminal justice system. I mean, and that's, uh, I think that's probably common. I, I, I do recognize some similarities between the work that uh, that we're doing in um, here in Colorado and, and other um, providers that I've talked to in other areas where um, it's just it's a good idea, but it has to be um, going against um, I, and, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, but um, entrenched entities or, or people that, that have their um, their experience. I was actually talking to a colleague the other day for breakfast and and uh, she had said that uh, in her town, she just moved to a, another large city, not going to be named, but there was a, a one or two particular individuals who were the essentially the veteran godfathers of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, um, and that she felt as though, you know, we have to kiss the ring and we have to um, we have to serve along. I mean, even if it were not something, um, you know, if, if the, the method of operation is not as good as it possibly can be. Um, but we still have to go along to get along. And, and that can be really challenging when, when people are just trying to do well for veterans to do, do good work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But your, the program itself, how is it set up as far as a counseling program? Kind of what kind of, um, impact did it have on the community, but, but about the program itself? Well, we started, uh, with a single counselor, uh, who was also a qualified uh, clinical supervisor, and uh, we recruited through the local um, uh, university, uh, the University of North Florida, and their clinical mental health counseling program. Uh, we recruited four um, interns who were interested in working with veterans population uh, post-graduation and also as their internships. So we applied and became a uh, uh, certified internship site through the University of North Florida. And the I don't know who had more effect on whom. I don't know whether the veterans got more out of the interns or the interns' lives were being enriched by the veterans' uh, stories and and. Uh, I think it was probably a really good, healthy combination of the two. So we, we established some uh, volunteer groups, some group work, because oftentimes uh, that will be the vehicle through which we can uh, attract, if you will, a veteran into individual therapy, is uh, sharing some of the experiences in a group setting. So we would have uh, what would have traditionally been called um, Anger management, perhaps, in a group. Right. Uh, we would we would give it an alternative name, but but give the uh, give the veterans an opportunity to talk about what their triggers were for for angry episodes that they might have, what their triggers were that that would bring on uh, uh, depression, and uh, what relational problems they had, and so on. So the, the groups. Um, really were very helpful in making the veterans feel comfortable in an environment that that contrasts greatly 
with the active duty model of you don't talk about any problems with mental health if you want to save your career or get promoted. So at what point, like uh, when, when did your initiative start there in Jacksonville? This was uh, three, I think three years ago. Okay, so about 14, 13, 14, and that was really, um, that was after a lot of the surges, but that was still a very yes. high op tempo for both theaters. So you, you did see a lot of uh, uh, service members. Um, and so it's not like uh, 2002, 2003, the wave hadn't hit yet, you know, but this was, this was when it was, it was a pretty big crisis. Right, right. And these guys were uh, th that we ended up seeing at the center uh, were guys that had completely fallen through the cracks. So they came home. For many of them, they had uh, severe relationship issues, not just uh, spousal issues, but issues with uh, their parents, issue with uh, other family members. And they kind of burned it, burned them out because they, nobody knew what they needed. Nobody knew what was going on. All they knew is they came home and they weren't who they used to be. So th there were few to any resources for them outside of the VA. And frankly, many of them didn't even realize they had access to the VA. Right. So we would, part of what we would do is establish a relationship with the VA for healthcare, uh, which is a little bit faster than behavioral healthcare. And so we, um, we managed to catch them as after, really, they had fallen through the cracks. There was no veteran safety net uh, in the area at that time. So we had guys that had been living in abandoned buildings. We had one guy who was actually had lived in a hospital for a number of months, and he would just figure out uh, where to hide at night and get up in the morning, take a shower, and go out and try to find a little work here and there. You can never underestimate the resourcefulness of a veteran. No, sir. And that's another, I mean, th that's, a, that's a really good point too, Dwayne, because I, when we think about employment, when we think about uh, what some of the things I was talking about a little earlier about the guy who his supervisor was afraid he was going to catch PTSD or, or give it to, uh, to his other employees, uh, people need to understand too that when, when somebody comes out of the military, they have been in a highly disciplined, structured environment for anywhere from two to however many years. And so that oftentimes that training is going to kick in. So they won't demonstrate some of the behaviors that would be more obvious, perhaps, to someone who had not had that experience of being in the military. No, sure, absolutely. I mean, it's it's what I tell uh, veterans and people all the time. It's it's as much of a culture, you know. You and I, we spent time in the military as if we went to go live in Europe for a period of time, um, and became acculturated to that. Uh, you know, maybe we still spoke the same language. We went to Ireland or Germany, but then we come back here and we're familiar with a different culture. Um, yes. Even even when you just said, I know a couple of guys, probably some of my co-hosts on this podcast would be like, man, that's a great idea to go live in a hospital. I'm going to try it out. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a, you know, like it's just a challenge for me. Man, why, why didn't I think of that? Just to let everybody know in the audience, we are not endorsing that you use the hospital as a temporary shelter. I was thinking about a cruise ship, maybe. Maybe, could you know, just yeah. a stowaway, just to, you know, um, you know, you don't work here? No. 
but but yeah so i mean that's that's exactly the thing is that's the kind of thing that that you know a veteran um has has different experiences anyone would have different experiences you know if if you grew up in uh you know if for example you know people say oh where you're from i'm from missouri Oh, you cows and no, I'm from St. Louis. Totally different type of Missouri, because it is a I'm a city guy. I'm not a I'm not what you would normally think that someone from Missouri and it's and it does have to do with a different type of background. Um, and, and I think not a lot of veterans understand that themselves either. How they exactly. were their cultural connection to the military. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's helpful even to be able to help them understand that. And that's that's one of my things. And, and you know, if if you believe the same, it's it's that mental health is not about fixing what's wrong with you. And you're talking about counseling. Mental health counseling is not about fixing something that's broken, but it's it's helping you become a better version of yourself. It's a wellness thing. Instead yeah, of an illness. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Absolutely. that's that's a misconception. A lot of veterans have. When they think about therapy, it's Freud on the couch. You're going to make me, you're going to throw me a bunch of pills, but it's not really like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, other than, I mean, there's some of those community barriers, but what are some of the other challenges um, that, that you see um, that, that really kind of uh, get in the way of uh, veteran mental health, either from an individual standpoint or maybe a community standpoint? You know, I, I think back on this uh, one young vet who had just come home uh, from Afghanistan, and when they were doing uh, some of his uh, transitional work with their group, uh, he said there were about 400 people in this auditorium, and he said this uh, uh, officer got up in front of the, the group, and he said, all right, Raise your hand if you've ever felt any of this stuff that I'm getting ready to read to you. And he read the diagnostic criteria for uh, PTSD out of the DSM-4. <laughs> now, how many people do you think raised their hand? Right. So now everybody's cleared. We have no symptoms of PTSD. Go home. Be blessed. Go, go along your way. So part of what we fight is the continuing culture of of the active duty military where the stigma against seeking any kind of behavioral health uh, assistance is frowned upon uh, the 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 medical care system is even there's a, a, a special provider that is designed by active duty military where you don't go for counseling you just go to talk a little bit and if the counselor decides you have you you are going to be diagnosed, they have to refer back to the command for the command to make the the referral to a therapist. So that's just because, frankly, the the people there are the the concern at the uh, officer level oftentimes I think is operational readiness. And they think that any anybody who has had any sort of mental health issue uh, is no longer operational ready, so they need to just go home. So I think we start with that that level of stigma, and they come out uh, of the military, and they if they are VA eligible, then they find roadblocks there. So uh, when you get just a simple comparison. Of it takes me 30 days to get an appointment 
for my shoulder that's hurting versus 120 days to get an appointment for mental health intake. That that speaks loudly to somebody, I think, that is already uh, maybe having to operate under. And, and, I, and I think that that's a lot of um, the idea of that external stigma that has been internalized and the veterans take that out yeah. from their yes. service. Um, a lot of the, uh, and even some of the senior leaders I talk to with the activity, at the senior levels, that seems to be changing. There, there's a, a lot more understanding around mental health concerns, um, but it's really at that that base level, the squad leader, the team leader, the the team chief, the section chief, um, that that stigma still stands strong. Yeah, and they have more influence over. Um, more daily influence rather than the the lieutenant commander or you know Fulberg colonel. Sure, absolutely. And and so I I think that and of course the barriers that are coming along with the VA and and again you you communicate with the VA I communicate with the VA on a daily basis and of course everybody's trying to and they do say you know things are changing and we're doing a lot of different things. Um, but but how can community providers, in your experience, um, come alongside and provide support for the VA? Um, because a lot of these veterans don't have uh, Tricare, for example, or or, or or you know they they simply can't pay for their own services. Right. I, I think that the answer to that is we have to multiply the number of counselors who are culturally competent for working with veterans and I think coming along with that um, is the realization that forget about the VA for a minute uh, we are so short nationwide in the number of mental health counselors that are needed to provide adequate care for the entire population um, of, of Americans that it becomes even more of a challenge when you narrow that down to a specific target population like veterans. But I think we need to provide uh, scholarships and other funding that will help develop these counselors uh, and and develop them. By develop them, I mean uh, help them with their education. It's a very expensive process and help them with uh, mentorship and training as they move out into the world and, and begin to do what their hearts are telling them to do, which is counsel with veterans. So I, I think at, at, at the center of the issue is going to be that multiplication. We've got two mental health counseling uh, university programs here in Jacksonville. Uh, the three, there are three, uh, maybe four now active cohorts. So we're talking 60, 75 people, and out of them, maybe 10% might be uh, focused on, on providing services for veterans. Yeah, and you mentioned that earlier, you, and, and even going back to that um, that first cohort, uh, and, and I'd meant to ask that before, but out of those first four interns, were any of them veterans? Were any of them had any military background? Yes, one, uh, I, I'm sorry, two of the four had military background, the other two had family members whose lives had been uh, adversely affected by uh, war. Because that's one of the things that, uh, that that I think that I know that I hear often, I, others hear often, is 
veterans will say, well, I'm not going to go talk to anybody who hasn't been there. I'm not going to go talk to someone who's not a veteran and stuff like that. Uh, and as you very clearly mentioned, there's not enough of like you or I mental, you know, veterans who are also mental health professionals. Um, there's not enough of us in the mental health professional community for that to be a requirement. Um, I'm personally not of the opinion that someone must be a veteran to be able to counsel veterans or even to be able to counsel them most effectively. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I agree 100%. It kind of goes back to the old argument. Some of the finest uh, marriage counselors I've ever known have been Catholic priests. And there was always an argument that how can a priest who can't get married and has never had a family do know anything about uh, family dynamics. Well, that's what our universities and colleges are for, to te teach those skills. And I think the underlying skill set that's needed for providing effective, um, or the under, un underlying foundational skill set, I would say, for providing effective counseling to any group, but most specifically our topic of veterans, is that of compassion. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think the, the desire to want to learn um, about uh, veterans. I mean, this is some of the challenge um, that I think uh, I've seen across many communities is uh, there's a professional counselor who says, oh, I know trauma, so therefore I must also be able to work with veterans because I know trauma. And, and that's not exactly a one-to-one -one, um, no. uh, uh, connection, uh, but a desire to understand um, on a deeper level what the cultural experience of a veteran is. Um, as opposed to just, well, I know I work with uh, vehicle crash survivors, and so I know PTSD. Yeah, I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right with that. I think that um, the one of the differences for me is oftentimes with combat veterans, it's uh, more of a persistent trauma. And that's there have been a lot of studies about the effects that persistent trauma has over uh, a single time trauma uh, in, in somebody's lives and what that does in terms of, of conditioning. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that uh, just the, the constant uh, exposure to that, uh, to, to, I mean, perhaps not even just trauma, but constant stress. I mean, obviously, neurologically, biologically, there's things there too. Now, I did want to, uh, you know, I do like to talk to everyone, or I don't like to talk to everyone about this because of the subject matter, but there, there is few challenges that are more significant in our veteran community than the epidemic of veteran suicide. Um, it's, it's insidious. We know, um, you know, the, the studies a couple years ago said 22, now it's down to 20, but again, that's just a, uh, an algorithm, an approximation. Um, it's, it's just the veteran suicide epidemic, uh, even one is too much. Um, how can we as mental health professionals make an impact um, on the epidemic of veteran suicide? Yeah, that is, uh, <clears throat> that is probably the, the question for today. Um, I, th I think what happens with a lot of the guys, if, if you even get to uh, find out what a case study would be of someone who uh, was a veteran who came home and within two years or 20 years committed suicide. I, I, I think it's difficult to 
place a template over that and say, if we only did this, then this would be the result. Mm. I think attention is one thing. I go back to the multiplication of, of it's, it's a multi-pronged approach, the multiplication of the number of counselors, the no, multiplication of the number of counselors who are passionate about working with veterans, the uh, community education piece, which uh, hopefully will always be geared toward reducing initially and then hopefully someday eliminating stigma. Uh, the idea that families uh, oftentimes uh, feel helpless and they need families need to be empowered to reach out and say, my husband, my wife, my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter is having these problems that I don't understand and have the family be a vehicle to try to help them get the help that they need. Yeah, but even then, and, and I think I saw a, um, a, a recent article where, where even the caregivers are increasingly isolated um, because uh, their community, they're not sure of what the resources are. And so they feel as though, um, you know, no one else is going through this. And it goes back to that same, uh, you know, the impact of the stigma of silence. Yeah, exactly. And, and so and, and that's really, you know, what what, you know, we're trying to do here as far as getting the word out to say, you know, look, there there's there's tons of places out here. I, I was written uh, I was reading um, or writing one of my blogs um, and, and I did a Google search just for, you know, uh, veteran suicide help. Um, and within 0.6 seconds, there were millions in hits. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, there's yeah. Um, it's it's out there. Um, but and then that goes back to that internal stigma of at that point of crisis, does that veteran or does that uh, community or family member know that there's resources in the community? And, and how do we break that? How do we get the message out? Um, because that's where I feel like sometimes we as mental health professionals might be spinning our wheels. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I think is is often overlooked is the ability of a mental health counselor to get a message out to the community through uh, organizations like the Rotary Club. Uh, Rotary Club, having been a Rotarian at, at one point in my life and having been tasked as one of the newer ones at, at that particular point in my life with being in charge of program because nobody wants to do that <laughs> right. and they're desperate to find people who will come in and speak for 15 minutes and I can promise you that if any counselor were to call any Rotary Club and ask them if they had a meeting that they could come and speak the answer would be yes so civic organizations any opportunity uh, that presents itself to be an ambassador for veterans needs and resources that are available but I think that's also uh, a challenge with our industry is we're typically, we, we know what we do works. It works behind closed doors. We don't really talk about it. We can't tell you specifics, of course, because it's confidential and things like that. But we seem to be so convinced of the quality of our product that why wouldn't people just come in and sit down and yeah, tell exactly. secrets, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and that's one thing that I've seen with, with some colleagues is they're just, they're not comfortable doing that. They're not comfortable getting up and talking about, not, not that they're ashamed of what they do. They're very proud and passionate about what they do, but the outreach um, and, and even, uh, you know, for yourself coming on a podcast and talking about these things, 
sometimes we as an industry do ourselves a disservice. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is also the work ethic that we have. Uh, yes, true. I, I'm thinking right now, here I am on a podcast with you and my dear wife, uh, who actually is the manager and owner of our practice, uh, is going to be in her office for another hour and a half seeing clients. Right. And she started, started at 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, we grabbed lunch in passing over about 30 minutes. So uh, by the time, you know, a uh, 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 counselor puts in a week's worth of work, it's time to hit the sofa or, you know, hit the beach or walk a trail or something. So I, th I think that's another thing that happens. We have to carve out time times in our lives to say, okay, this is important. This is an important time for me to take the opportunity to speak out and share about something that um, I might be an expert about. You know, and that's uh, that's something, you know, folks, every time I talk to Dr. Greg Frazier, I learned something. That was a learning point for me. You know, I think uh, when you and I sat down for breakfast and you said that I still have a lot of edges, right? We, yeah. we, an, an, another, another one of my edges was just knocked off because you're exactly right. I think about my colleagues and they're they're very, very dedicated to what they do and they have they have a large caseload. And so it is an, an opportunity of. I mean, it's really more a bird in the hand versus two potential birds in the bush. I can spend an hour talking to a client that really needs my help. Not that it's egotistical and myself-based, but, but I have a skill set that can help a veteran. So I'm going to work with a veteran who needs my help rather than spending time going talking to a bunch of people, which may or may not turn into something. Right, right. No, that's, that's great. Always learn something. I, I always do. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, sir. <laughs> so, I appreciate wherever that came from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it is. I mean, but it but it makes total sense, and you're exactly right. And and we, you know, there's we we get caught up in in what we think should or or should not be done, or could or couldn't be done. Um, but uh, but I do have um, the the gracious support, not just from. Uh, my employer and, and obviously the NBCC Foundation. Uh, I guess I should have made that uh, uh, declaration earlier. I am actually a recipient, a grantee recipient of the NBCC Foundation, but this isn't part of that. So um, don't want to. They are a sponsor of the work that I'm doing in Colorado Springs, not of this podcast. But even the the benefit of uh, the uh, Jay and uh, or of. Um, of Bennett and Eddie who are hosting the podcast to be able to allow us to use this time to talk about veteran mental health. And that's not typical. Not all, not all in the profession have that ability. So that's great. Absolutely. So one of the closing questions I like to ask is uh, if you have a veteran or, you know, somebody listens to this and, and they shoot you an email and they'd be like, you know, what's the point? Why do I even need to work with a counselor? What, what, why would it, you know, what good would it do me? What would you say to them? I, I think I would tell them a little bit about my own story. Um, as everyone knows who's in the kind of mental health business, um, the diagnosis of PTSD didn't come along till 1982. And I came home a decade earlier than that. So you didn't and, have PTSD, right? Uh, yeah, right. It, wasn't yeah, it didn't exist. <laughs> And I went uh, from pillar to post looking for resources uh, for somebody who could tell me why I was feeling the way I was feeling. 
And uh, the person who ultimately was able to initially snag my attention uh, was not a veteran. But he was someone who cared passionately about what he was seeing among veterans who were coming home from Vietnam. So I would say that the wisest person is the one who will seek out someone who can walk a journey with them. When we try to do it alone, uh, the only feedback we get comes from a mirror. And it's so helpful to have a live human being sitting across from you who really does care about what's going on in your life to walk that journey with you. Well, that's great. It's a, the, the idea of um, without reaching out, you're just going to get an echo chamber. And right. It's just going to respond back to you. No, that's uh, I mean, and, and, and I agree. I, I whenever I am confronted that with that question, I say, well, how's life working for you now? Is it as good yeah. as it could possibly be? Yeah. Um, you know, and and, uh, and 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 that's some great thoughts. So, is there any other questions that I didn't ask that uh, that that you think maybe I should have, or something that you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think I sneaked all that in, Dwayne. <laughs> you, you worked it in, in spite of my questions. Is what you're telling me. That's great. No, your questions were very uh, stimulating to me as I. I said offline to you, they, they really made me think back more years than I even care to count. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm, whenever I reflect, I find that I always come up with some new insight. Well, that's so great. thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that, too. So uh, if uh, some of our listeners, especially maybe those in Florida, some um, uh, mental health professionals who are, are interested in learning more about the NBCC Foundation, how can they get a hold of you? Um, uh, website perhaps or email Twitter I don't know if that's what you do sure the easiest way it would be to go to the website and uh, it is nbccf.org that's National Board for Certified Counselors Foundation.org or November Bravo Charlie Charlie Foxtrot.org no, that's uh, and and definitely um, you will find Dr. Greg Frazier and his contact information there. Uh, congratulations, I hear uh, for the NBCC uh, itself. Uh, I just saw the big news about the portability um, yes. that that just recently happened. Um, obviously, this is a little bit not for our broad listeners, but for those of us in the profession, that's huge. Um, and so just extending my thanks to, to you and the NBCC team that, uh, that really is doing a lot for that. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, that'll wrap it up here for the uh, Headspace and Timing podcast, folks. Uh, uh, Dr. Frazier, again, it's, it's always great um, when I am able to, to, to steal some of your time. Um, but uh, especially thankful that you were able to spend some time uh, to, to get this out to the audience. Great. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life.
Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.